0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Live from the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club, it's week to week, the political roundtable for Thursday, March 19th, 2020. Now, like all Commonwealth Club programming these days, we're coming to you from an auditorium that has nobody in it except our audio video team and myself. Our panelists tonight are joining us via video conferencing. And of course, this setup allows us to continue sharing this important programming while, of course, we're all trying to shelter in place and we're all trying to keep ourselves and our families and loved ones safe. So we're presenting these programs free. So naturally, we would love it if you would consider making a donation to help us through this very difficult time. Just go to commonwealthclub.org and we thank you in advance. I'm John Zipper, your host for Week to Week. Let's get started. Now, I think a lot of people... Really, they finally realized that this coronavirus situation was serious when sports teams started talking about canceling games or playing games without anyone in the, in the, in the stadium. Uh, you might have seen LeBron James had uh, said he would not play if there was not an audience in the arena. Um, but even by that time, there had been some European soccer teams that had played, actually played the games with no one in the audience, just like we're doing this program here. Um, they could have learned a few things from American soccer teams, which have been playing to audi- uh, stadiums with no audience for many years. But that's a different reason, I think.
1: Oh, so sad.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Um, on tonight's program, obviously, we're going to really go into the political implications of the coronavirus crisis. We'll talk about the latest in the 2020 presidential race. And if we have time, we might get into some other stuff. But... I think we're going to be spending most of our time really on what's going on, uh, on the front lines, if you will, of this coronavirus, um, usually on week to week, we have the program right after a social hour where people have had some wine and cheese, uh, and then we end it with a live news quiz. Well, obviously we're not going to be doing the live news quiz tonight. And, uh, for the wine, I hope you're at home with a nice glass next to you and, uh, enjoying yourself for the next hour. And I'd like to include my usual reminder that any opinions expressed here are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. Now, let's meet our panelists for today. Uh, Tim Anaya is joining us from Sacramento, where he's the communications director for the Pacific Research Institute. He's the co-host of PRI's Next Round podcast, former director of writing for the California Assembly Republicans. You can follow him on Twitter at Tim Anaya. So welcome back, Tim. Hello. Uh, next to him on our screen is Melissa Kane. She's a political journalist. She's a lawyer. She is not on Twitter, so don't even search for her. So welcome back, Melissa. <laughs>
1: Thank and, you. Thanks for having me.
0: And Dr. Gina Ballaria. She's an assistant professor at Sonoma State University, and she's the host of the new podcast, News in Context, which I hear debuted with a fantastic guest.
2: Oh, our first guest was so amazing, John. Wow. Really. Fantastic.
0: Uh, anyway, you can find her. It right.
2: was John, right? It
1: was totally John. <laughs> okay, he's making sure. Guilty. Uh,
0: Gina's on on uh, Twitter at Baleria Creative. So let's get on to our roundtable. Um, let's discuss the political impact of this. I mean, it, it's been huge. If you want to hear from medical experts on the coronavirus, I would direct you to our YouTube channel where we have uh, yesterday's program that we held. Um, and it's quite a good program, but we're a political program. So I want to get into whether our political system the institutions and the, and the leaders, um, quite frankly, are equipped to handle this situation. Let's maybe start on the national stage, and and, and I mean, Tim, President Trump had, was getting it from both sides of the aisle for his certainly his early reactions or non-reactions even to it. He's changed tact a little bit, but what what do you make of both how he started and where he's going now in terms of leading?
3: Right. Well, I think uh, you're exactly right. You know, um, what was about a week ago, the president had his uh, address to the old fine time where everybody listens and, you know, you're expecting the big kind of rallying cry. And I think one of the big missed opportunities that he had was there were two or three glaring errors in the address that his team spent a day or two having to walk back. And, you know, it's questionable whether did he misspeak or did uh, his, uh, you know, was it uh, a misprint in what the speechwriters had to say? But as far as, you know, his communications team, that's just malpractice. You know, this is your opportunity to rally the country together. And it really kind of hurt the president for a while, I would say. Now, as you and everyone have noticed, since then i think he has finally realized the gravity of the situation and his tone has been markedly different um much more presidential if you will um but i think the whole um you know kind of how he's been on this i think it's a good lesson for elected officials when communicating in a crisis to start with you know you know it's one of the things that's gotten high marks are all the doctors and scientists and experts who are on the stage behind him. My advice to elected officials, you know, basically you should hide behind the scientists and the experts because you're not that. You know, I know working for elected officials, you tell them a figure. It's like the telephone game. The next person they tell, it's going to be gone. All of a sudden you have made up numbers and I've actually had to chase Down made up numbers and, you know, clean that up over the years because simply they don't remember them and they make them up. It's across party and all levels of government. So, really, my advice the best thing a president or a governor or a leader could do is let the leaders talk and say, listen to them, do what they say.
0: Gina, you teach communication. Uh, What kind of message? do you think the leaders of this country should be giving now? What do people need to hear?
2: Yeah, I think the leaders should decide who exactly is my audience. And I think that's one thing that I'm wondering about who the president's audience is. I mean, I think his audience is in part, uh, corporate heads and, and wall, uh, people on wall street. And I think that was the audience that was leading at first, um, in some ways, but his audience is also, you know, his base and his audience, hopefully, is also the the American people at large. So I think depending on who your audience is, you are sending specific messages. And if you have to speak to various audiences, you're sending very specific messages. So I always start with my students, you know, to really figure out exactly whom you're talking to and what do they need from you? What do they need to hear? And and then help say that. How can you say that to them without misleading them, being as honest as possible?
0: Melissa, as you've watched this unfold, uh, do you do you think he gets it now or uh, enough to uh, to as stand behind the, the uh, experts or at least do his teleprompter Trump instead of the, you know, pros tweet Trump?
1: Well, you know, he is he does seem to be getting better. I'll say that uh, we've got some bipartisan uh, agreements uh, already on rolling out some, uh, you know, some help. Uh, in the situation. And so I, I think, you know, his, uh one of his sins was sort of taking a bit longer than I think people would would have liked to get here. I think people wanted him to come right out the gate and say, this is a big deal. And frankly, it took all of us some time to figure out that this was a big deal. To your point, you know, it took canceling some pro sports, uh you know, seasons and games for people to go in a minute. That's, uh, you know, hey, Tom Hanks that's an American treasure, right, you know. Right. <laughs> before before we actually got that figured out, so. uh But it does seem that that he has come around and is listening to people and really does want to do. The right thing, uh, and I'll say politically, uh, I haven't seen his approval ratings move that much. It seems like people who hated him initially still think he's doing a terrible job. People who liked him initially still think he's doing a great job. So in terms of what this has done, um, and the impact that it has had on people's perception of him, uh, overall, it seems like people are still uh, sitting there with the same, uh, lens that they, that they came to the, the situation with
0: we were talking about uh, his audience and, and Wall Street and such. He made a number of, or I think twice he, he spoke like, I think in a, in a hope that he would calm Wall Street, which has obviously been up and down and up and down and all over. And literally they had to stop, you know, the, the, the floor from uh, working for, was it four times within two weeks?
2: Four or five. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: at least one of those times, you know, he, he gave a speech, I think it was a speech last Wednesday night, I might be wrong on that. My days, and the next day, the market plummeted again. Um, I mean, if that's one of his core audiences, he's have have they lost faith in him, or are they not paying attention to him? They're looking to maybe Steve Mnuchin or or someone else to deal with their their concerns. Uh, Tim, any thoughts on that? Well,
3: I think um, you know the question you raise is a good one, and that Gina brought up is. What's who's his audience? You know, and you would think that, you know, Wall Street, you know, that's his crowd. Those are the people that he hangs around with, those people. And it's one thing that we always counsel elected officials when they're speaking is, you know, know your audience. And if you notice in some of the press conferences, that one where he was name checking, you know, the clearly... All those names are important to him, and that's impressive to him that, you know, he talked to all these people and they're doing a great job. I guarantee nobody watching at home knew who any of those people were or were assured by um, what he was saying. I don't know if it's necessarily that Wall Street is tuning out or voicing their displeasure. They may be sending more a message to Washington in general. Hey, we're hurting. We need action now. We don't need talk. And here, and the message has been kind of clear every day. As there have been new twists and turns in, is this bill going to pass, or what proposal right. is on the table? Um, it's roared when they have proposed things that talked about things that Wall Street likes, and they've sure contracted fast when they either things have been delayed or or they're not getting the progress that they're seeing. So, I don't know if it's a Trump thing per se, or it's more a message from Wall Street to Washington.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Melissa, someone in the audience yeah. asks the question that uh everyone's talking about. Does coronavirus pandemic increase chances of Trump winning the election in November?
1: Well we don't know yet as is the answer. And it actually goes back to your the question that you just asked about the economy. I mean he knows the best argument for a continued Trump presidency is the health of the economy and the strength of the economy. and Historically, that has been a really good bet. And so the extent to which there's lasting damage here um, really will help determine whether he stays in office. And I think he knows that. And I think that's why he's making speeches that name check Mm -hmm. certain people on Wall Street. And he's seems to be pretty uh, eager to uh, pass whatever bill or do whatever thing he needs to do to get the market back up and get the economy going. And I think that may be a little bit of why he uh, didn't make it uh, such a big deal out of the gate. He wanted to tamp that down and sort of keep the engine of the economy rolling and not really crash everything. But I think he's well aware that uh, continued or sustained economic problems as a result of this really, really imperil his presidency. So uh, things are changing, as you know, every minute, every yes. day. So it's hard to say right now what will happen in November, but that's what you you should all be uh, looking at. And I think he cared about Wall Street before, but he definitely cares now.
0: Gina, news broke this afternoon that Senator Richard Burr dumped about $1.5 million worth of stocks uh, after he publicly reassured the, the public about the government's coronavirus preparedness mm-hmm. But he had apparently privately told another group, "It's much worse. It's like the 1918 uh, flu epidemic." Uh, we're going to see more of this, I think. I mean, uh, yeah. Talk a bit about that. I mean that that's that's the kind of thing that that my I would think is going to increase the general distrust of whatever they're being told out of Washington.
2: Absolutely, I think you hit the nail on the head. For me, it's just, this is I think what the general public is frustrated with is. Look that clearly there's some malfeasance there that needs to be investigated. Is it even going to be investigated if he's convicted? Is he going to get pardoned? you know there the the mechanisms of accountability seem to be tenuous at this point, or people don't feel like they're there are not even people don't feel i mean they clearly people who've been convicted are pardoned immediately, et cetera. Now we have another very seemingly very clear and specific example, and I think honestly that uh is sort of a um maybe a, an example of the larger issue of distrust which potentially could be why wall street has been plummeting so much and why there's been so much sort of fear is, is because people don't necessarily feel like there's a steady hand at the wheel, no matter what, this was going to impact the world, you know, no matter what coronavirus was going to, was going to have an impact. But I think it, you know, because it was, um, the, the administration was slow to respond, even with clear warnings, uh, you know, models that showed this is exactly what was going to happen, uh, you know, and, 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 Clearly, insiders knew and were dump. You know, this we have one example of someone dumping stock. So I think, uh, to me, I you know I want to see accountability, and I think a lot of people in the general public want, are craving, are desperate for accountability. Um, and and I think that's, <clears throat> I don't know. Again, I, who knows what's going to happen in the months to come with with elections or whatever. But I think that that's actually a really large um, and unexplored thing that the general public is holding on to or thinking about.
1: Yeah, and there have been proposals to rein in and limit um what kinds of financial interests senators are even allowed to have because they're often privy to very confidential information prior to the markets. And so there's insider trading issues and other kinds of issues. And so, so there have been calls for reform in this area for a long time to kind of prevent things like this and, and others. Um And I don't know if it'll be uh, lost in the fog of, of war, but but something like this is a real good example of why we do, I think need to be thinking about that and, uh, and looking at proposals to, to bring that in. Yeah. I,
3: I saw somebody on uh, social media said, Martha Stewart went to jail <laughs> for far less than this. Yeah. Yes. So how does mm-hmm. this guy even survive the weekend in office? I mean, he's really lost the public trust and in this social media world, Look what we've seen in the last week. You know, that guy, I think it was in Tennessee, whose garage was full of hand sanitizer and (laughs) such. You know, uh, we were ready to have pitchforks and angry mobs. Probably going to have the same thing headed his way. Probably already is this evening.
2: You know, I, I, I hope that's true, but look at the context we live in. It feels like you, something shocking happens. Oh my God, that's terrible. That's whoever it is, whatever it is. And then the next day it's like, okay, whatever, moving on. And right. you think, you know, Martin Screlly, although the the guy who jacked up the price on um, EpiPens, he did get held accountable. Uh, you know, he's one example of accountable, but it took a second, right? It took a while for people to, to, and so, so I don't really know if he, you know, I think he's going to last the weekend. I hope that there 's some accountability but i don 't know in the current context i i I question i i 'm curious to see what happens
0: well let 's talk about leadership on the state level uh Governors have been uh a little bit quicker in some cases to uh take action uh some of them uh the Republican mayor of Maryland has received praise for being forthright teaming up with the the scientists and the health officials um, Others, I don't really know what's happening in New York. If you've watched basically the feuding between New York Mayor, uh, de, de Blasio and, and, uh, New York State Governor Cuomo. Um, let's of course talk about right here in California, Governor Gavin Newsom, Melissa. Uh, what do you think of what he's done so far? I mean, he kind of scared the bejeebers out of a lot of folks yesterday when he was talking about, uh, the National Guard and, and, uh, I don't know what's worse thinking of rioting in the streets or your kids home for the rest of the school year, but he kind of w- went full bore on that. <laughs> How how would you? There
1: will be riots in the streets if kids stay home too much longer. That's think right. We're only going to take this shelter in place stuff for so long before there's some serious issues. But I think he's talking about national guard in the context of uh, you know dispensing um, aid to hospitals and and offering help with local law enforcement. But he's got a big announcement tonight uh, at six thirty, and that may be an increased uh, enforcement. So far, it's just been. Recommendations like everybody over 65 stay home if you can, things like that. But he may be looking to do something a little more concrete today. For example, we saw the governor of Pennsylvania issue uh, an order that uh, that basically bans everything except what he called life sustaining businesses. Oh, wow which is a very weird, I think, term, but but he, and then he has a five page matrix of all the businesses that qualify and don't. It's really something, but, uh, but it's a, it's a very forceful uh, order and uh, one that is backed up by police power. And so you may see the governor of California moving to something a little more definite because right now, to be fair, for a lot of companies who are operating in California, you've got 20 different uh, at least Order, shelter in place orders all over the state. Uh, you gotta sit and figure out, you know, where, where are you in? Where are you out? we you have to shut down. Where do you have to do this? Uh, and so it may offer some, you know, blankets, uh, you know, relief on that front as well. But, uh, he's sort of easing into it. I know today he asked for it. It can't, it can't have been easy, but today he asked the president to send the USS Mercy to, uh, dock on the, uh, you know, outside of LA to help them with their healthcare needs, and uh, again, that that cannot have been an easy ask, but uh, but he made it, and I think he's uh, trying to listen to the folks around him. Right now, local governments are doing a lot more of the sort of enforceable stay-at-home orders. But, uh, we could see him um, making a, a thoughtful move tonight.
0: Tim, staying with, uh, in fact, his his uh, request for the hospital ship. Um, they're also kind. Of, we were talking about this a bit before the program started. He also kind of got some messaging mixed up there with, with some really scary numbers. Uh, talk a bit about that and, and how they walked that back.
3: Well, he uh, sent a letter to the president. I believe it actually was the letter requesting the uh, the mercy. And he estimated in uh, the letter that 56 percent of Californians would contract the coronavirus. And that's about 25 million people well this is again another one of those examples you really have to be careful with what you say and how you say it because immediately that set off um you know a, a panic on twitter um and his press team was forced to come out almost immediately and say well that's what would happen if we don't mitigate and if we don't take all the measures like stay at home orders and social distancing and all of that well, it really just reinforces that a governor who, by all accounts, has done a great job and a great job communicating. Uh, Dan Walters, I saw on Twitter, said this is the first real mistake that uh, Governor Newsom has made during this crisis. And um, that's really one. It's good they were on top of walking that back. But that really has the potential when a governor is using that those kind of figures that really has the potential to incite a panic. <laughs>
0: Gina, how would you rate the governor's leadership on this?
2: Um, I, I have to say, I, for the most part, I, I think he's been doing a good job because he came out right away and was and was taking it seriously. And trying to communicate with the public. And, and that's something that I think he tends to try to do. And, and I agree that the 56 million number was definitely, I got an email from a student today saying, Oh my gosh, I just heard what the governor said. You know, that, that anxiety is real and, and it's, um, and it definitely affects people. But I, you know, I have to say nobody's perfect and it it's how he responds or it's how the team responds as, as you said, Tim, and, and they, they responded immediately and clarified and walked it back and, um, I, you know, for me, as long as the leader is taking it seriously, being honest, uh, walking back their mistakes and 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 owning them and taking responsibility, then i'm feeling good about that leader uh, and I feel that governor Newsom right now is 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 there for me
0: it's interesting that the the that, that number represented if we weren't doing these stay at home and and other mitigation efforts um of course, the government of the United kingdom, their original plan was just let it wash through knowing that there would be fatalities and massive sickness, but they're thinking, and it was also guided by health officials and, and science saying that they, they were hoping that that would give them some kind of built in herd herd immunity for later waves as this thing sticks around year after year. Um, they've started to change that a bit. They, they finally, I think tomorrow they're closing schools and universities and such, but um, there are other approaches, you know, and, and, uh, when you hear some of these numbers uh, that y- you almost kind of wonder, all these things that we're doing, all these changes we we're making that are absolutely destroying some businesses and nonprofits. And, you know, it's really hurting people. So individuals who, who are sole proprietors who are working the gig economy. I mean, they're, they're flat on their back. Um, you almost wonder, well, is there something to be said for instead of going the other way, letting things go as they go? And, and uh, you know, yes, we're going to have fatalities anyway, but at least we wouldn't have gutted the economy in the meantime. Is well, I a-
2: wonder, well, I wonder if there's a, sorry. Uh, I okay. wonder if one, there's a hope that a vaccine will come online pretty quickly. Um, but also I think, you know, I've, I've seen, I've read a lot about, you know, South Korea and the U.S. Yeah, i- ident- you know, diagnose their first case one day apart. Uh, South Korea had massive testing and was able to target and, uh, target and, uh, and, and, hone in on where they should have, uh, shelter in places, et cetera. Without the testing, the U.S. is just taking a blanket approach to this. And, and, uh, you know, again, I, I'm not the expert in this area, but I, I think there's something to be said for that because South Korea is in a very different place. They're all, you know, they're also a democracy and they are, um, they are handling this very differently and we're seeing very different Outcomes from that. So you're right. There are different ways to handle it, but I think, um, you know, doing the the preparation needed to be there too. And now that it's not, you know, this is what we're, we're doing. Melissa, I think
1: if you, if you talk to, um, to economists, you know, they'll have different opinions about, do you, do you send checks to everyone? Do you lower the federal interest rate? This, these all vary, but one thing they all seem to agree on is that you got to deal with the thing. Right, the thing is the thing, and a, the economy. Like you can people can have money, but if they can't leave their house to spend it, like, what is the point of this? So the idea is, let's focus on, to your point, professor, about uh, testing. Let's the problem that we need to solve is that people have this and don't know it, and then they're spreading it. So we have to figure out a way to alert people or to let them know and and sort of let us know before they go into certain buildings how uh, and if they're infected, and that is where the money and the resources and the attention should be. In addition, we have to do what we can to sort of keep the machine clunking along. But in terms of where the focus needs to be, even economists say, fix that and, you know, everything else will come right back.
0: Tim, where do we put the blame on the fact that we have so little testing? I mean, is this a presidential issue uh trump obama or something else or is this a state issue is it private hospitals i mean why are we doing so terribly and south korea taiwan both doing so much better
3: right i think in some case it is a you know did we take it as urgently right up front as these other countries did keep in mind the south korean others you know this isn't their first rodeo here they've had other um you know pandemics that they've had to deal with um from what i understand um you know some of it was getting a test that works you know that is correct you know that it's not an easy test there's a lot of there's two parts to it as i understand there's a lot of you know getting um getting the raw materials for for that as well um so part of it is just do we have a test that works um you know, and then the other question is, um, do we have the infrastructure in place to make all of the tests all at once? You know, we've had a lot of discussion of, um, you know, the issues with China. One of the things that in a global economy, a lot of medication is made in China. A lot of, you know, goods in general are made around the world. So, you know, do we have factory capacities in the United States with all the raw materials to make all of these things all at once. You know, these are hard questions for any elected official and, um, you know, national leaders, whatever the crisis is. I will say one of the things uh, in communicating it is, you know, the first week, last week, when the president got pretty poor marks for his communicating There was a lot of, we're going to have a million tests tomorrow. We're going to have 5 million tests at the end of the week. Well, on the ground, we still don't have any of that. And this week, we're still dealing with this test issue. You know, governors, you know, states are, I believe UC, the UC system is working on their or has set up their own uh, test. So really governors and local officials are almost having to triage and figure out on their own, you know, how do we get tests? How do we get enough and who are the people who should be prioritized in getting tests? I think one of the interesting things, NBA players seem to have all the access they want to these <laughs> tests. How are they getting them? Uh, but folks who are in need and have all of the, uh, the symptoms and should be getting the tests, they don't have them. So I, I think the bottom line is probably a failure at all levels of government. And we're just not geared in the United States for this kind of thing. And now hopefully one of the results of this will be, we'll have that kind of thinking and capacity and infrastructure in place.
0: Tim, I want to stick with you. Uh, we can get into f- some of the uh, national stimulus and, and response legislation that's being talked about. But first, and, and what I'm getting at is when people t- start talking about $1 trillion and things and you're like, well, aren't we like already $800 trillion in you know deficit or whatever, can we handle that? Well, presumably, yes. But on the state level, what are our resources like? Now, you wrote about this earlier this week uh, on the PRI website. What's the situation like? Are they going to be strapped? How? What is their capacity to handle whatever these costs are likely to be?
3: Well, it comes at a very interesting time in the budget process because right now is when a lot of the heavy lifting is done on the budget. So for our, our viewers who aren't as familiar with the budget process – the governor proposes his budget in January. We kind of debate it during the uh, winter and early spring. The governor proposes an updated budget in May, and then the legislature adopts it by June 15 because they all want to be paid. Um, so right now we're kind of in the heart of when we're going through, you know, what's the caseload? What do we need for this? What do we need for that? Um, what uh, the downturn in the stock market highlights is, the long-term budget problem that we've had in this state for the last two decades, the boom and bust budget cycles that we've had that are driven by our over-reliance on capital gains and the stock market. So this, uh, run here where we've had, you know, the stock market dropped several thousand points, it means we're going to lose, uh, billions of dollars in revenue that we're counting on for the 2020-2021 budget. Now, there is some good news. We have in 2014, my former boss, uh, who's probably watching right now, shout out to Connie Conway, the former Republican leader in the Assembly. One of the things that she fought for and brought Democrats and Republicans together on was a rainy day fund. We'd had one that had a lot of loopholes in it. Now we have a strong rainy day fund reserve. And thanks to Governor Brown and Governor Newsom and smart decisions by Uh, The legislature, we have about $20 billion in the reserve. So that'll cushion the budget pain that we're going to have. You can only use about half of it in the first year of an economic downturn. So potentially there's about nine-ish billion dollars that would be available if really the bottom falls out. Now, I worked in the legislature in 2008 and 2009 when we had the worst budget crisis ever We had to solve a $68 billion budget crisis over two years. The governor said the other day they forecasted a little bit for if we had a mild recession. And he said it was worse than 2001 but less than 2008-09. I believe the figure he used was a $70 billion, over three years, a $70 billion hit to revenue, about a $40 billion hit to the general fund. And he said we're the best positioned we've ever been to weather that kind of budget. But he said, if it's worse, and you could probably argue we might be at the tip of it's worse, then it's a different conversation. Then we would necessarily be talking to the federal government, bringing in assistance to the states. So we will see in the coming weeks, we just don't have the numbers yet. The legislative analyst put out kind of a, a teaser post the other day. And he said, you know, we don't have numbers yet, but for sure this downturn in the stock market will cost us several billion dollars in revenue. The last point, the legislature um, passed a, a little over a billion dollars in emergency assistance for the state, 500 billion, um, or 500 million immediately. And then they gave the state the ability to tap another billion dollars, you know, as needed in $50 million chunks. So we've taken the first, and they also passed some things to give school districts uh, some breathing room on making sure they're whole by not holding classes. So we have some emergency plans that are in place, but I would stay tuned and prepare for a radically different budget in May because the outlook and our priorities and needs in May and our revenue levels are far different than in January.
0: Melissa, where should the state government be spending that money? I mean, we're going to have a lot of needs from, you know, obviously straight health care issues to, you know, more unemployment and all that kind of stuff. I mean, where where do you think the state should be uh putting the money it's got?
1: Well, on some level, the state doesn't have a lot of choice, right? I mean, they're gonna have to pay for um, you know, Medicare costs, for example, that go up. They're going to have to pay for increased, you know, unemployment uh, costs. And I I think I read that the, the website for the economic development uh, department crashed the other day because there's so many people trying to Apply for unemployment benefits. So, on some level, they're not going to have too much of a choice. Actually, one thing that that the governor did last year, he talked a lot about. I, I remember interviewing him; he kept talking about it. Was that in the budget, we there was a big surplus in uh, in last year's budget, but he uh, tried to put that surplus into one time spending, so you know, fixing rooftops on schools, for example. So, not ongoing obligations, so that the loss of that some of that revenue from over last year, for example. Won't be as painful because there there aren't ongoing obligations, and so we could probably get away with uh, a, a smaller budget, smaller a smaller budget uh, in the uh, in the coming year uh, a little bit because of the way uh, the governor structured the way uh, the budget was uh, over the last year. So uh, so hopefully that will also help. But but a lot of this is just costs that the, that the state has to incur and making sure that they have enough to cover those uh, ongoing and mandatory obligations.
0: Gina kind of the same question to you. I mean, where we're we we're, we're se- we all know and maybe we are ourselves hurting from this. Um where do you think and what should the government be doing? How should it be addressing, you know, the people who are unemployed, people who are uh uh their businesses are, are are out or they're even not unemployed, they're just extremely underemployed right now. <laughs> what can and what should the government maybe be doing?
2: Yeah, I mean I think I I I agree with what both of my fellow panelists have, have said. And I think you know, in a lot of senses, they're going to have to deal with healthcare issues. And I'm one thing that might come from this is that we finally deal with what we need to, what we, sh- what we might want to do better with healthcare. Um, I, I, you know, and then of course, unemployment, now that I'm in education, I, I hope that education, uh, you know, is is spared you know in, in this process but I understand you know the priorities have to be on people's health and and people's well-being and and those those needs people have that are that are critical and foundational so I, I would say we need to focus there as much as we can
0: okay um, we've talked a little bit here and there about mayors but mayors really have had to uh, step up and make some sometimes pretty dramatic, uh, moves here in San Francisco, Mayor London Breed, uh, putting moratorium on evictions, um, uh, as well as taking other steps, uh, obviously the, the shelter in place such should mayors be the ones on the front line of that. I mean, should they be getting more support from, I I would think particularly the state, but, or is this kind of a matter like Rahm Emanuel says, well, it's the mayors who actually are the ones who are the closest to where the problems are, where the constituents have the needs. Uh, any thoughts, Melissa?
1: yeah I mean, just from a federalism kind of standpoint, not to uh you know try to give a civics lesson here, but you know the the police power is supposed to reside at the the closest point to the ground. And so if you're talking about who's going to send the, literally the cops out to arrest you, if you're walking down the street, ideally that's not coming from the president, right? That's coming from, uh, your mayor. Uh, so it can be a very targeted thing because you can see, for example, how, uh, how a shelter in place order for San Francisco is not going to work in a a rural county where there's, you know, just a few thousand people. Uh, and so making sure you're tailoring it based on the actual, um, Uh, the actual circumstances of your community is, is important, especially when you're doing pretty dramatic things. I'll give you an example. Uh, the northern, um, North Bay uh, counties like Sonoma and Napa, their shelter in place orders actually exempt more agriculture than than San Francisco, partly because San Francisco doesn't have much, if any, <laughs> agriculture, uh, but but also because you know it's just a different need in that community, and I felt like that that could be conducted without uh, running afoul of, of the CDC's suggestions, and so. Doing those kinds of things, making sure it works for your community and what they need, uh, I think is really – I think it's important. And I think they should have the support of the state and federal government and the county government. But uh, but those aren't necessarily decisions you want to have made uh, at a high, high level.
0: Tim, do you agree?
3: Yeah, I agree. I think, too, where mayors can play – and in California, county supervisors can play an important role – is you're really giving voice – uh, to what's going on in your community. I've been impressed, and normally I I have a lot of quibbles with his policies, but Mayor Steinberg here in Sacramento, what I thought was one of the more impressive things that he did, he actually went to one of the Rayleighs distribution centers here in town, and he was with the chief operating officer for Raley's, and he showed, look, folks, there's a lot of food here in the warehouse there's going to be food for you when you go to the store. You don't need to hoard and buy a month or two months worth of, of food. So I think, you know, they can really play an important role in kind of keeping people calm and also responding more nimbly to um, the needs of the community. I would say on the point of the statewide versus uh, versus the mayors, you know, it can cut the other way. Uh, We've seen in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has gotten a lot of criticism for not shutting down the beaches. You know, we all saw that crazy video with the if I get Corona, I have Corona, kid. Uh, He probably thought it was a Corona beer. um, (laughs) But he passed the buck and said, well, you know, I'll do the 10 people social crowding rule, but it's up to local governments to shut down. Uh, The beaches. And it actually struck a lot of people as well, you're passing the buck. And the local governments, Clearwater, where the Corona kid was, they're closing the beach, but not until Monday. Well, that's (laughs) where you need a governor to say, sorry, Mr. Local Health and Safety, we're overruling you and shutting it down immediately. Yeah. Well, I.
2: Well, oh. I have to speak up for the Gen Z, Gen Z kids. I gotta say, for the most part, they're very politically engaged and they care a lot about these issues. I just wanted to speak up for them. Yes. But I think, yeah, but I do think everybody has a role to play and, and it's clear when the right, wrong person or the right the person who's expected to play that role doesn't play that role, we see a pushback from the public and, and as the example Tim gave.
0: Yeah. Melissa, a few years ago, you interviewed Tom Nichols here at the Commonwealth Club about his book on the, uh, the death of expertise, and uh, his subject was how so many people distrust experts and expertise, often totally misjudging their own abilities to be able to differ, to uh, perceive truth and uh, the right decisions on things. So here's a softball question: Are these chickens coming home to roost? I mean, this is the, you know this distrust of expertise in our society is is widespread, and it's certainly across the political spectrum. Um, And now when we really need it, it's we're paying for it.
1: Well, you know, this it's actually, you know, when you have when you talk to people who would rather Google things or just watch random people uh, on the Internet other than rather than go see an expert. The example I mean, the trump card you always can play is like, hey, would you go see a doctor? Who, uh, you know, or would you rather just like, you know, Google your own, you know, treatment? And so doctors have always been sort of the ultimate, uh, you know, unassailable, ideally, uh, group where you say, I'm not going to go in for surgery with somebody who's just been on Google. I want someone with experience and, and a degree and, and certifications. And so now here we are, <laughs> and, and this is exactly the kind of situation where it really When it, when it matters, when it is life and death, people have to realize that expertise matters. When your health is on the line, and it's one thing to say, oh, I don't believe, you know, the chairman of the fed and I don't, and I'd rather believe like my friend Fred down the road. That's fine. But people are starting to realize that it is the extraordinary circumstances that lead us into an extraordinary fear that lead us into seeking out the help of experts. It is the, uh, and I don't think anyone is, any expert is happy about this. I think they wish it hadn't happened, but at any rate, they're certainly benefiting from a renewed interest in people with actual experience and degrees and certifications.
2: Yeah, there's an op-ed in the Washington Post today from, I'm looking at my other computer to make sure I get it right. Uh, Stuart Stevens, who was a, uh... Uh, Republican political consultant who basically said, you know, that this was uh, that this was a um, a strategy to try to uh, to try to uh, minimize expertise as part of a, of a larger uh, strategy. And the, the, the title of the op-ed is Republicans Like Me Built This Moment, Then We Looked The Other Way. So he, he uh, you know, he has a very interesting perspective on these were some of the strategies that we sort of saw coming and yet thought this was politically expedient. Um and again i you know i i i mean i I generally try to be non non partisan but I think in a moment like this where people are people's lives are actually at risk and where real harm can be done, I wish we could have the frank conversation about um how we've been how certain members of the public or certain leaders have been characterizing experts and and things like that and i you know i I want us to be able to have it, but of course, it comes off as sounding partisan. And I'm hoping in this moment, as Melissa says, that maybe we'll all sort of remember, oh, yeah, there's a reason why we want the experts. Okay. And I would
3: say kind of on that point, um, you know, I've been thinking back to a debate that we had in Sacramento last year where, you know, it was kind of that weird place where the far left and the far right meet out in the nether region somewhere on vaccines in California. Yes. a lot of very far left and far right people don't believe any of the scientific expertise on, you know, you should vaccinate your children. Right. And to me that typifies kind of where we are now that you're going to have people, not just people in their bunkers, a lot of our friends and neighbors yeah. kind of think of, of these things too. Of, they just don't, you know, it's not an age anymore of where you could just say, trust me, I know what I'm talking about. Uh And Yes, of course, you should ask tough questions and scrutinize, you know, people all the time. But, you know, these basic kind of foundations of science is science, listen to scientists and doctors, they're not making it up. Um, you know, you have to do what you're going to do individually. But um and certainly our social media world fuels a lot of this kind of weird chatter and these conspiracies on on the left and the right.
0: Well, let's move on to a, a lighter topic, if you will. Gina said she didn't want to get uh partisan, but let's talk partisan politics for a bit. I want to check in on the 2020 race. So much has been happening in, in the primaries on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, not so much. I mean, we expected, of course, Donald Trump will get the nomination. He's already clinched the not, the delegates he needs. Uh, William Weld promptly dropped his uh, very unlikely candidate, candidacy. Um but on the left, on the Democratic Party, I mean, obviously, let's start with the biggest news. Tulsi Gabbard dropped her race and endorsed Joe Biden. Yes, she was still in the race. <laughs> no, uh, obviously, the, the big news seems to have been just this revival from the dead of the Biden campaign. Um, Melissa, is this race within the Democratic Party over I mean, one one of our viewers asks, "Why hasn't Bernie dropped out of the primary race?" Mm. What do you think? Well,
1: don't ask him that because he okay. will snap at you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. <laughs> there does not seem to be any real path for him to get the delegates that he needs, um, and. You could maybe look at maybe a brokered convention if there was a third candidate who was peeling off a good chunk of delegates, and you could fight over them. But now Joe Biden seems to be well on his way to um to, to getting every to getting all those delegates well before the convention, and so uh, I think the calls for for um, for Bernie Sanders to drop out are, are going to get louder and louder. Although I'll say this: this coronavirus thing has really shifted the public's attention from that. And so it's, you know, what seemed like a pressing issue of his exit, uh, it seems a little less important now when people are sort of trying to focus. And I think people just, just sort of assume it's going to be Biden. So we're just going to be over here talking about Biden and Trump in November, and Bernie will just drop out when you do. Uh, and so I think that it's it's a, it's, It's a little less urgent now, although uh, I think he's still getting a lot of questions. Uh, And, you know, there's still these, you know, now there's all these issues around Italy has single payer and look at what's happening there. I mean, this is really exposing a lot of this healthcare conversation uh, that we've been kind of being hypothetical about um, for, for quite a while. So, but I, but I still don't think it's enough to turn the tide um, back to Bernie Sanders, even though he can still be in it and still have that be part of that conversation, at least for now.
0: Gina, your students, young people, are they Bernie people? I mean, when they talk about candidates, uh, is it as overwhelmingly his demographic as it's sometimes made out to be?
2: Honestly, it's not, I mean, at least in the students, and I, I mean, I have a lot of students I connect with, and, uh, but there are definitely the Bernie, the Bernie students, or the mm-hmm. Bernie young people, but there were a lot of Elizabeth Warren young people, there were a lot of people who were mulling Biden, and there were people who were thinking about, uh, you know, I asked a lot of young people, uh, right after the debate that Elizabeth Warren clearly did an amazing job. And when she sort of held Bloomberg to account, uh, my students, uh, several of I did, I interviewed a bunch of young people and some of my students and a lot of them like, God, I really loved Julian Castro. I was so bummed to see that he dropped out. I really liked Kamala. And that was really disheartening to see that they had to drop out so early. And, and, um, so it wasn't, it's, they're definitely not this monolith, uh, for Bernie all the, and, and I think you know, we kind of see that in, in the voting. I mean, m- not only did maybe young people didn't come out as much as they could have, yeah. I think the voting wasn't as, uh, but one thing I do want to want to say about this is it was, I mean, we're, we're where we are and we've got our candidates, but I think it was disheartening for a lot of young people and and for myself to watch a really amazing and vibrant group of, um, um of, of possibilities, uh, get so shuttled into, uh, you know, black and white narratives and, um, and even, you know, even after that, that moment when Elizabeth Warren did so well, I think 538 did a, did a, an analysis of the headlines the next day. And I don't think her name was in one of the headlines. And that was very problematic for my student. My students and I spent a lot of time talking a lot about framing and narratives. And, um, and I think that really had an impact on the way, uh, things went. And, and I, I, it's, I, it was a missed opportunity. I think. To have certain discussions,
0: Tim, uh, Bernie Sanders has been leading a movement, probably even more so than running a candidacy. Where do you think that movement stands now? After basically, let's for all intents and purposes, the primaries are over. Uh, is it has he made it stronger now, or with really, I mean, kind of overwhelmingly now, the rest of the Democratic Party coalesced around Joe Biden. Does that say, look, this is this party is not what you want it to be, Bernie, that 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 core that you think is going to be strong enough to to be your party is not there?
3: I think Joe Biden actually put it best. People want results. They don't want a revolution right now. And I think, as Gina pointed with a bit about turnout, you know, I think he would have had a stronger point to make if. The turnout is what we would have expected it to have been, because certainly when you see it on the streets, you know, there are real activists. They're strong in numbers. You know, the, the, there are there is real enthusiasm for him, um, certainly in California. I think the question is, how does this, you know, as we wind this race down, what taste is left in the mouths of the Bernie supporters? You know, in 2016, it was a very ugly end to the race. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton to this day, you can tell when she gives interviews, she has utter disdain for Bernie Sanders. Don't, right. don't utter that name around her. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, you could argue that, and the convention, remember the convention, you know, there were catcalls at the convention, yeah. booing of, of, uh, Prominent, you know, prominent Clinton supporters. So the question, and then I think you could argue in the fall, it was just enough people that could have accounted for that. What is it, seventy thousand vote difference in three states? So this time, the question is, will the dislike of Trump trumpet unease about Biden? I think Biden has a real uh, challenge, and I don't know that he um i don't know that he rose to the occasion in that debate of winning over the potential sanders supporter um you know and now we're basically going to have kind of like a front porch campaign until you know whenever hopefully soon we get the all clear so i i don't know and and i think this establishment and media pressure of you've got to drop out it's got to be over that's going to exacerbate the tension so i would say let him do his thing. He's not a guy who's going to drop out tomorrow and sing Kumbaya. Uh, I mean, I think it's very unlikely that he would drop out before the convention. And what matters to a Bernie Sanders is the platform. So if I'm a Joe Biden, figure out whatever platform planks he wants that isn't going to cause you heartburn in the general election and say, go for it, make him feel heard and part of it. And that, Um, his ideas have, you know, influenced Joe Biden, then hopefully, you know, they will be energized and active and enthusiastic for Joe Biden in the fall. That's the key. It's not just that, hey, we're okay with it. You need them enthusiastically involved in the campaign to have any chance to win the general election.
0: On the probably safe assumption then that uh, Joe Biden will be the nominee, let's play some parlor games. And let's start talking who might be a good uh, who might be a good running mate for him and who is a likely to be in a pool of running mates. Uh Melissa, uh, any thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, normally the conventional wisdom is that the vice presidents don't matter. They don't really move the needle. But but when you have two uh candidates who are in their 70s, it actually does play in, into a lot of people's minds. Uh, and so also the conventional wisdom is you're looking for someone who's going to get you a constituency um that you need, right? Maybe one that you don't already have. And so if you're a Joe Biden, a lot of people have said Kamala Harris. I'm not sure she gets him a, a new constituency. I don't know what else she is going to bring in that, you know, for folks who were, you know, weren't already going to vote for Joe Biden. Uh, and so maybe an Amy Klobuchar, um, somebody Midwest, smart, did a great job in the debates, somebody who could really help him. Because frankly, if the Sanders folks, some, some of them are going to stay home. That's just, that's just the truth. To counter that, you got to get more on the, you got to get more people in the middle. You gotta get more independents, you gotta get more, you know, maybe some, some Republicans who go, well, you're not so, you're not so terrible. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're angry and they're, 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 they're not happy with how things worked out with Trump. You gotta try to get those people in and she can help you get those people in, uh, to, to put together a coalition that can win. Remember, it's not a popular election. <laughs> In those in those really critical states, I think she could be very helpful. So that's uh he might pick Kamala Harris. I know a lot of people are pushing for that. But I think strategically, it might be more useful to get um, to, to ask for Amy Klobuchar.
0: Gina, your thoughts?
2: I, I think if you want to try to make an effort to get the Bernie group than maybe Stacey Abrams from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's what he's going to do and I'm not quite sure. I mean, I would love that, but I'm not quite sure it's the best choice. Um, but I think that that at least she is someone that the Bernie crowd would be like, oh, okay, well okay, I like her and and potentially keep them keep their eye on the ball a little bit um i i I've heard Kamala a lot, and um I think what Kamala does bring is she's a prosecutor she even though she's from California and maybe doesn't have that midwest connection she has the um she has the credentials to get that that middle of the road crowd maybe engaged a little. <laughs>
0: I'm surprised you didn't say uh, Elizabeth Warren. Would oh, know?
2: I want that, but I don't think that's realistic at all. <laughs> um, I, think I, I, um, I think Warren is fantastic and pragmatic and has amazing ideas. I think she's probably, uh, I'd hate to lose her in the Senate. I, I, and I also think she's also um, up there in years with Biden and Trump and everybody and, and probably thought, so. with a younger VP. Okay, Tim.
3: Yeah, I and I would wonder too on the Elizabeth Warren point. You know, there was a lot of heated discussions between the two of them. I wonder if the Bernie crowd would be excited for Elizabeth Warren. Some would, but I, I wonder overall. Um, I, um, you know, this is always kind of the moment of, you know, you're voting head over heart. And, uh, you know, the name of the game is you got to win the election. So I think you're exactly right. People like Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris would, you know, excite the base. But is it going to win you Michigan? Is it going to win you Wisconsin? You're going to go into Pennsylvania and have Kamala Harris. You know, it's it's not really. And I think you could argue the campaign that she ran for president, not being able to answer the tough question of how do you pay for it? Is she going to be taken? You know, is she going to pass the smell test of this as a potential president? So I think Amy probably is the one who checks off all those boxes from the Midwest. But I've heard a lot of people online already saying it's another boring ticket. So I think ultimately, you know, is this a choice that he's making for governing or is this a a choice he's making to unify the party? If he has to make a choice to unify the party, he's got a lot more problems, you know, going into the general election. I think an Amy Klobuchar could be an attractive general election candidate. Um, I think she would do well. We saw in the debates that she would do very well. And Melissa's point is key. There is a percentage, I don't know what it is, of kind of, I call them the hold your nose and vote for Trump voters from the last election. And they're in play. If you have kind of a ticket that's unacceptable, you know, for sure Bernie Sanders, they would have all voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. Now, a Joe Biden, they might find acceptable. Who he picks as vice president is key in getting that vote to cross over. If he picks someone who isn't acceptable, the kind of suburban voter, you know, that could tip the difference in an Arizona, in a Georgia, you know, they're going to sit on their hands or, you know, hold their nose again and vote for Trump.
0: Someone, uh, one of our viewers asks, and they're actually kind of looking back to 2016 and saying, was Hillary Clinton a weak Democratic candidate? Or are moderates weak democratic candidates in this era? Any thoughts?
2: That's a great question. I was thinking that as we talk about, we always tend to like settle ourselves back into that, as, as Tim just said, that bland, uh, ticket, right? And is that really the way to go? Because if we look at the past few elections, you know, Trump was, uh, you know, Trump was a slap in the face. I mean, I don't mean that in a good or a bad way. I mean, he just was very different and Obama was very different than the typical candidate. Maybe he didn't turn out to be, but he felt new and different and and vibrant. And, I uh, um and so I, I wonder if the conventional wisdom should be broken a little bit. Like, I wonder if it might be actually the right thing to do to choose St- Stacey Abrams, even though it feels like maybe you'd lose on that proposition on the other end. Um, I think I think the, I think that's a question that has to be discussed. I'm glad we are. I I, I, I wonder. Quite- I, I think
1: for a lot of people like this is this Trump administration has been a total roller coaster. Like I think there was a lot of there are a lot of people who maybe they voted for Obama in 08 or 12. They weren't feeling Hillary. They either didn't vote, maybe voted for Trump. And then, then there's also folks who just thought, well, we'll see. Maybe when he gets into office, uh, he will be, remember there was a whole debate. Will he be presidential once he gets into office? Well, now we've had four years and I think a big old bulb of oatmeal looks really good to a sure. lot of people <laughs> who, uh, who feel like maybe they've had their fill of the excitement, uh, over the last four years. Uh, and so the, and that's part of, I think, of Biden's appeal is sort of a go back to back when, um, you know, you didn't have to wake up every day and go, what has happened? Uh, and so, um, and so I think, you know, there is something to be said for that and in a way that was not in a sort of an enthusiasm for that in a way that was not present in 2016.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, we are out of time. I want to thank our panelists, Tim Anaya, Melissa Kane, and Dr. Gina Baleria for joining us tonight. And thank you for watching and listening online. Uh, We will be back on Friday, March 27th, and uh, we will certainly have a lot more to talk about. So stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you in the future. Good night.
1: Thank you. Good night. Thank you.
0: Thank you all. Bye.
1: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.